We are concluding this morning our studies in 1 Thessalonians, and I ask you to please turn to chapter 5. We will read verses 25 through 28. 1 Thessalonians 5, 25 through 28. This is the epilogue of this letter. The Word of God reads, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to save this letter, to, to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that is the reading of God's word. Let us pray once again. Father, it is in vain that the horse is made ready for battle. If you do not give the victory, it is in vain that the workers build. If you do not edify the house, it is in vain that the watchtower watches. If you do not give the victory, any studying, any power of the intellect, any ability to speak or to hear or to discern intellectually the truth is completely in vain unless your spirit gives illumination to the read, explained, and heard word. We pray, Father, that you please draw near to us by your spirit and that the speaking of the word may be edifying and God-glorifying and that after we hear, we may be doers of the word. And also that you help us not to contribute with the evil one who seeks to unplug what has been sowed. But help us, Father. Help us to grab the word, spread the word, and apply it for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This is our last sermon in 1 Thessalonians, is the epilogue. For me, there are two things that are really hard to preach, the beginning of a letter and the end of a letter. Because many times these epilogues have benedictions, greetings, or chopped thoughts that we take them for granted. We assume they are just there as a formality, but that is not the case. And in this particular case, no, we have more than just some thoughts to conclude. We have a strand of thought. The outline is pretty simple. It's a plea to pray for Paul. He says, brothers, please pray for us. Then the request to greet one another with a holy kiss. Then he puts them under solemn oath. And as a Jewish man, that was pretty serious. I adjure you under the Lord. I Hold you accountable by oath that you read this letter to all the brothers. It's pretty serious stuff. And then a final blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If we read that, they appear to be like isolated, haphazard injunctions. They are not. There is a line that binds them. And it is the line of fellowship. It is the line of koinonia, of communion. In fact, if you're visiting, this is the last Sunday of the month, and after the sermon, we celebrate communion, the last Sunday of every month. 
communion, the Lord's table, is communing with Christ. It is engaging Christ in that ordinance of remembering him with the bread and the fruit of the vine. Well, communion is koinonia, is having things in common, having a common bond. And of course, by nature, human beings are gregarious. I mean, we, we do have communion with a lot of people in a lot of circles. We have fellowship with people at work. We have fellowship with people in our department. We have fellowship with our friends in school or high school or college. We, we have fellowship with people who share hobbies with us. Keepers, even gang members have fellowship with one another. And mafia guys have fellowship with one another and have their parties because they have things in common. We are a gregarious entity, being. In fact, people who isolate themselves normally either have problems by birth, and I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek, I have a daughter who is special, and she prefers to be isolated, or have a spiritual problem, or some mental issue. Because by nature, we want to be associated with others. Now, Christian fellowship, Christian communion, differs from all of the fellowship and associations we have in that Christian union, Christian communion, is living and dynamic because it is based on our union with Christ. There is something that every believer on the planet has, whether we know one another or not. We are connected, bound, joined to Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches. He is the head of the body, we are members of the body. Whether we know it or not, if we are in Christ, we are united to Him, and that makes us united to one another. Irrespective of our social status, wealth, culture, language, education, age, sex, it doesn't have anything to do with that. We are one in Christ. The Bible teaches that. And it is in that context of Christian fellowship and of Christian communion that Paul gives this final instruction in the epilogue of this letter. Pray for us. I believe he's saying pray for God's kingdom. Pray for the preaching of the gospel. Because whenever he asks for prayer, that's what he asks prayer for. He says, preserve the unity that you have. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Affirm your unity in the truth. Have this letter I'm writing to you read to all the brothers, whether they were present that day or not. And then he grants them a blessing under the Lord Jesus Christ. So the strands that bind that final injunction or that final epilogue is, a, is, is fellowship. These are not isolated statements. This is something given to a congregation gathered under the name of Christ who had communion with one another. Now the first one is pray for us. It's a plea. And that plea acknowledges two things. It acknowledges dependence. 
but also reciprocity. Why do I say that? Because the letter starts with Paul praying for the Thessalonians. It ends with Paul asking prayer for the Thessalonians. That is not casual. Middle Easterners wrote that way. The way you knew the title or the topic of a book in ancient Middle East literature was by seeing the beginning and the end. It is no coincidence that our own Bible, which is compiled of 66 books, ends in Revelation 21 and 22 with the same elements that it begins in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That that is not haphazard. It is a way of writing. It ends where it begins. And Paul starts praying for the Thessalonians. He ends up asking them to pray for him. Now, a statement about equality. Those who are leaders in the kingdom, quote-unquote leaders, they are actually servants. I was trying to explain that to someone who came visiting yesterday at, at Zaley's mother's uh, memorial. He says, well, the pastors are not really the leaders, they are in the Bible called the servants, the slaves. You, you guys are not accustomed to that, but in the country I grew up, people have domestic help. A lady who comes and cooks for you and cleans the house for you. Another one who takes care of the children. Another one who does the laundry. And you can be poor, but you can have those things. Well, those are the pastors in the church and the deacons. They are not the CEO and the CFO and the bosses. They are actually the servants. I didn't make that up. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 4. So in this passage, he's simply showing the equality and reciprocity of, just as I prayed for you, I need you guys to pray for me. We, we all carry a Roman Catholic inside, don't we? Many people, many times people come, pray for me. I'll pray. Many times I pray right there as you're asking me because I know I'll forget. So as you're talking to me, I'm already praying so I don't fail your request. Because if I go home, because you think I'm this holy man that's going to spend four hours praying for you, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm just as weak as you are. But as you're asking me, I'll pray. And if you send me a text, I drop what I'm doing and I'll pray for you. But there's no special power in Freddy or anybody here praying for you. We are all priests. That's what Revelation 6, 1-6 says. God made us all a kingdom of priests. So we are priests. We can pray for one another. And the effectiveness of our prayer is not in what we do or what we are or how long have we been believers. The effectiveness of our prayer is in the mediator. And there's one God and one mediator between God and man. And that is Jesus Christ, the man. So... Paul is saying, pray for us because we need your praying. He's also recognizing his own weakness. Pray for us. He was an apostle, 14 years in Arabia, learning the gospel directly from Christ. Pharisee of Pharisees, knew the Old Testament as no one knew it among his contemporaries. The advanced disciple of Gamaliel, the man who made miracles, powers, signs, who worked more than all of the apostles combined. Can you believe that? He did more than all the other apostles together. This guy was Superman. He was a Michael Jordan, LeBron James hybrid of the kingdom. 
he says, pray for us. You know why? Because he was like us. And he needed prayer. Now, when he said pray for us, he was not saying, well, pray for me and my life and my circumstances. Pray that it doesn't rain in my trip to the beach. Pray that it doesn't rain in my birthday celebration or camping day I have. Please ask the Lord to bless us. No, no. Pray for this battle we have. And I'm not saying it's wrong not to pray for the sunshine when you're going to the beach. That's fine. But as I tell my wife and my children, Dad, can you pray for not to rain? It says, there's a lot of people living around here that need the rain for their crops. I'm sorry, I'm not going to ask God to harm them for you to have fun. Don't count on me. Sorry, I'm that mean guy, but... Logic says, God is not going to make the sun shine for my kids to be in the beach at the expense of people who really, really need the rain. That's the way I see life. I'm sorry. But anyways, point is, pray for us. We are weak. I became keenly aware of that weakness a week ago. Stayed until the 3 a.m., 3.30 a.m., Speaking the gospel with a couple of friends, childhood friends. Fascinating how the wife had a mix of, I don't even, chimeric thoughts about salvation and religion. She's Roman Catholic. But unbelievable syncretism in her mind. The husband, who's a historian, very intellectual, was on my side explaining to her the gospel. Says, you, you, you cannot be a good Roman Catholic person. That's not what your church teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. And he's actually explaining the gospel to his wife. But he doesn't embrace the gospel. He understands it. He can communicate it even better than me. But he doesn't believe it for him. Do you know why? Because this is a spiritual battle. You can use all the PowerPoint in the world. You can bring the best speaker in the world. If the Holy Spirit doesn't break through the darkness of the soul and doesn't remove the scales from the spiritual eyes and doesn't open Christ to the mind, we may understand it intellectually, but not with a heart. So Paul is saying, pray for us. There was persecution. There was affliction. That's what he asked the Colossians. Pray for us for what? For an open door to preach the gospel. He has the same to the Ephesians. Pray for us that I may open my mouth and speak as I ought to speak. Of what? Of politics? No, of the gospel of Christ. And that walls may be broken through the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And of course, this is a result of realizing how daunting the task is. Again, this was not a self-centered request. This was a request for the kingdom. In the context of fellowship and communion, he's asking, pray for the kingdom. Beloved, as you pray with your families, as you pray individually, as you pray as a church, put the kingdom first. The prayer sheet is not a social agenda to list the things we're doing. 
The prayer sheet is, has to be made and thought of and the prayer requests with a mind of considering the daunting task we have every single day to shine the light of the gospel to those who surround us. Why are we not killed when we come to Jesus? Why doesn't the, the statement from Isaiah is manifested in us, the righteous is removed so that he may not see iniquity? So you came to Jesus, boom, to heaven. Immediate rapture for you, for those who believe in the rapture. There you have it, an individual version of the rapture. Why not? Because we are left to be salt and light. And to shine the gospel, because we came to the gospel, because somebody spoke it to us. And it is the same task, year after year, century after century. The task is daunting, and let me say a statement of practical nature to Cornerstone Bible Church. Freddy's job, where's Freddy? I don't even see him. Oh, he's translating. No, Darren is translating. Oh, he's next door. Well, Freddy's task, whatever he's doing next door, is not to grow Cornerstone numerically. The target, the strategies on how do we make the church bigger? How do we impact our community? How do we impact the culture? That ain't the task. The task is that the church of Christ is advancing against the gates of Hades. How do I get myself aligned in that army of advancing the kingdom of God against the gates of Hades, which is not through the Republican Party or the Democrat, for the matter, if you are a Democrat. It is not through any particular social agenda of making America great or becoming God's nation. That was the, what they did in the Middle Ages. They used power for the Crusades. They used the Vatican's power to implant the Holy Roman Empire. That's not the agenda of the kingdom. The agenda of the kingdom is to advance it through the preaching of the word. Tearing down arguments and tearing down barriers and fortresses. How? Through communicating and speaking the truth. And bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that is a daunting task. It is a fight for the eternal souls of people. You parents, your fight is not to make your kids make it into the whatever special program the school has, the magnet program, and then have a master's, and then a PhD, and then be these brilliant professionals. If they are awesome, your task is to bring their eternal souls to the knowledge of God and pour your heart out and your tongue out, bringing and speaking grace into their minds so that they may have eternal life. And eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus whom he has sent. Number two, it's a request to preserve fellowship. Verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I didn't check this in the Greek, but being this, this the ESV, these brothers has to be the masculine brothers. Otherwise, they would have translated brothers and sisters. So Paul is talking in the masculine probably addressing everybody in the masculine sense. He was not so conscious about our times and being uh, gender sensitive. The holy kiss was a customary greeting among men. In fact, my wife and I noticed when we were traveling through some areas in the Middle East, 
that sometimes you would see men holding hands and say, whoa, we have this allergy, right? No, they were not what, what we think they were. It's part of their fellowship. They are very close to one another. In fact, we saw people treating, or men treating men with more kindness than the way they treat women. They may be very close to men and their women are walking behind them. Which to me is an aberration, by the way. I'm not praising that. But the point is, it was customary in that culture, and it is today, to greet one another with a holy kiss. Because the kiss is a manifestation of intimacy and affection. I'm going to tell you a story. 20 years ago, three guys, two guys from our church, no, three, went to Turkey because we had a missionary there. And we were sent to do a scouting trip. One of those guys is sitting back there. You know who he is, right? The mean guy? Haven't met him? Go meet him. He has a blue shirt. He's sitting under a black box. So we come to this Turkish house to meet a person. And there's this line, John Wheeler, C.K. Hawley, me and him. And John approaches the door. Hello. The way they greet each other. Then C.K., who's 6'4", they bring him down. Hello. And, but they are talking while they are doing the greeting. And Luis mumbles to me in Spanish. This guy kisses me. The trip is going to be over. There's going to be a problem. So I start like, oh my. Luis, please, you have to. Don't be Luis for once in your life. Don't be you. Mysteriously. And that's a Pentecostal experience for me. And I don't have a lick of being a Pentecostal. But this guy must have had a word of knowledge. Because he kissed me and everybody else. And hello, hello. And when he, and when he saw Luis, he did that. Hello. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> no kiss for Luis. But in that culture, yes, you kiss. Holy kiss, an affectionate kiss, an intimacy kiss. And Paul says, preserve the unity. Preserve your fellowship by having manifest expressions of camaraderie Love and intimacy. There are guys that I greet with the kids. I have high school friends that when I see them, they are so dear to me that I kiss them. And some of them kiss me. They are not even believers. It's an expression of affection. Now, remember Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Because it was part of their culture. And Judas was close with Jesus. And Jesus was accustomed to kiss his disciples too. He was a Middle Easterner. When he went to betray him, he kissed him as usual. And Jesus told him, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It was the last shot at his soul. But Judas was hardened. This kiss was more than a social convention. It was identification. It was camarad camaraderie. It was union. It was loyalty. It was love. Jean Green writes, in that quote that I think it's there, in the early Christian communities, which embraced all social classes, and that's important to remember, all social classes, slaves, libertini, and free, and various races, 
Greeks, Romans, Macedonians, and Jews. The holy kiss would serve as, would serve as an affirmation of their filial unity as brothers and sisters in the common faith. So this transcended social status, class, culture, race. Fellowship is a challenge. It is a challenge. It is a challenge for mega churches. Some people, and I don't know people who are visiting us, so if I'm, if I'm touching you, nobody told me anything about you, and I'm not a mind reader, and I don't have words of knowledge either, for the record. But, statistically, many people approach our church and visit us, fleeing from large churches. Because when you go to a large church, and I've been to some of, large church, and I've been to some of them, you just walk in, it's huge, you get your coffee and your greeting and very nice ambience and, and, and atmosphere and the music is great and the, everything is professional. But then you sit there and, and yeah, it's awesome, but you come and go and you don't feel anything. If you want to be part of the fellowship in a large church, you have to connect. And probably you've heard them emphasize, connect, you need to connect. Get the connect card, fill it out, get into a small group. Because they are aware of the problem of, of having a mega church. Well, fellowship is the same problem in a mini church like ours. Because if you come and just come and go, because today is Sunday and it's time to hear Mass, who, what father in Cornerstone is preaching today? Is it Father Dayron or Father Freddie or Father Edwin or Father Troy? Or who is, who is the father giving Mass today? If you come that way, same challenge for you. Or Father Kirk, he also preaches here. Fellowship is a challenge. Fellowship is something we must cultivate and seek after and preserve and we cannot do that as casual, distant observers. And let me say this without trying to manipulate you. We cannot do that either as being haphazard attenders. There are people you can always count on. There are others that you say, my life depends on seeing this person on Sunday. Uh, find me someone else. Because I don't know if they're going to come. They come and go. They hit and miss. Fellowship is something that must be pursued decidedly and pointedly. Thirdly... <laughs> Paul gives them a solemn oath. And this is really weird. Verse 27. Now I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. What is this? Perhaps, and I'm speculating. Speculating like other commentators I've read speculate. Perhaps at the time the letter was read, not everybody was present. And if you remember... 20 previous sermons we've dealt with this epistle is basically solving problems. There were ethical problems, moral problems, eschatology problems, uh, uh, theological problems, and Paul is dealing with many issues, many problems this church had. So now he's telling them, I don't know who will be present when this letter is read publicly, but I put you under oath that everyone has to read it. Pretty serious. Synagogues were many of the New Testament churches started, I venture to say all of the New Testament churches started in a synagogue. We're very small gatherings. Four men were sufficient to form a synagogue. Four men, their wives and their children. That, that's micro. Fits on a Sunday school class. Even today, you don't need a lot of people for a synagogue. So cities in those days had a lot of small synagogues spread out throughout the city because you didn't have mass rapid transportation as we have today. 
So it is possible that these churches were spread through different synagogues or house churches. And Paul is saying, make sure that everyone who belongs to the Christian community in Thessalonica reads this letter and reads these instructions and these corrections. So he puts them under oath. Perhaps Paul thought that some people would have not been present. Find them. Have them read the letter. The verb to read is the verb used in 1 Timothy 4.13 for public reading. Sometimes. I'll say this. I'll say this to perhaps liberate some soul. I hope I don't, I don't, I don't mess you up in your devotional lifetime. But you probably have come across some discipleship program that says that a good Christian is the one who reads 10 chapters of the Bible a day. Well, that luxury did not exist until Gutenberg invented the printing press. Because not everybody even had access to have a pergamon with rolls of scripture. In fact, scripture was read in the synagogues on the Sabbath and They had a copy of the Torah. They may have other copies depending on how much money that synagogue had. What you need to do is hear the scriptures. Of course, I'm not saying don't read it. I mean, you have it now in your your phones, right? So I'm not saying don't read the Bible. I'm not saying it's not important to have your Bible program in one year or two years or whatever method you use. Read it. Get to know the Bible. It's the only way to to get rid of guys like me if I'm trying to cheat on you or manipulate you. The world is full of smart people that believe every clown that stands on a pulpit because they don't read the Bible. Read it on your own. Study it. Challenge whomever talks to you and speaks to you the Bible. Now, this verb is public reading. It doesn't have to anything to do with devotional private reading. Because in the New Testament, it is commanded that the scriptures are read publicly when the church gathers. That's why Carlos stood up here to read Mark. And Tony starts in the morning reading some portion from the Old Testament or from the Psalms. There was a time when we used to have two services that we read consecutively through the New Testament in the morning, consecutively through the Old Testament in the evening. Why? Because we just are liturgic? No, because Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect the public reading of the Scriptures. When the church gathers, the scriptures must be read. And I've told you before, and I'm getting old, so bear with me when I repeat myself. I've been to a very, very famous, well-known church. I'm not going to say the name. And I promise you that I think I heard one verse quoted. And I think I knew it was a verse because it says that, that has to come from 2 Corinthians 7. But I don't know how many people could discern that had to come from 2 Corinthians 7. That same year, I had to go to a Mass. Oh, you went to a mass, you heretic. No, they invited me to a wedding, and there was a mass in the wedding. And I heard more scripture sung and read at that mass than what I've heard at two of the super-known, well-known churches in town. The scriptures are to be read publicly. And when they are being read, please remember it is a time to listen and to hear. The only thing you can have certainty of is when somebody is reading scripture. Even if Carlos mangles the names, as I do, that's the only certain thing you have. When the rest of us speak here, we're giving you our opinion of what we read. And it's your challenge to check and be a Berean and make sure the scriptures teach that. Don't be dazzled by personality, style, speaking, or whatever. So, yes, 
read this letter publicly and it was a practice of the New Testament churches to circulate and copy those letters. Paul told the same to the Colossians with a, church, with a letter to the Ephesians and vice versa. Read the letter sent to the Ephesians and you guys read, pass your letter to them. Why? Because that's the way that three centuries later at Nicaea, the church was able to say, these are the books of the New Testament, or most of them, because not all of them made the list at the beginning. Why? Because they were copied massively and circulated extensively throughout the world where there were churches. When you have thousands or hundreds of copies of a manuscript of a letter, and you only have two or three of another, it's not too hard to know this one is for real, the other one is not. So whenever you come across the Da Vinci Code and that kind of stuff, that's, that's why Nicaea did what it did. It was not an invention of the Roman Catholic Church. It's the practice of the New Testament to circulate and copy those documents they believe to be inspired. Now, as a practical note, truth is the basis for true fellowship. Have this letter read to the brothers. We cannot have true koinonia unless we agree on the truth. Amos 3.3 says, Two cannot walk together unless they first agree. 2 Corinthians 6.14-18 We cannot be unequally yoked with those who are unbelievers or those who do not think like we think. Now, is this a call to being sectarian and a separatist? No. But it is a call to prioritize on the truth. True fellowship is the result of the truth. You cannot have true fellowship with someone who does not teach, obey, or follow the truth. Holding fast to our confession of Christ, as Hebrews 10.23 teaches, holding fast to the confidence of our hope, as Hebrews 3 teaches, remembering and keeping the words we were taught, as Revelation 3 says, holding fast to the form of sound teaching, to the form, because we have to be precise, articulating what we believe from Scripture. Oh, but I believe in God too. Everybody believes in God, including the demons, James says. There are no atheistic demons. Did you know that? No demon in hell or those who are wandering through the air says, Oh, I don't really know if God exists. Oh, no, they believe and tremble. They would see Jesus from the distance and would say, I know who you are. Did you come here to torment us before the time? Demons believe. So you can have a lot of belief. You can do a lot of crying and have emotions running in you. God has no value without truth. I saw a lady, she broke my heart, visiting those holy places in the holy land. And nobody knows where things happened. You know, somebody says, okay, it was here where Jesus died. And they build a, they put a hole, people touch the rock, and they build a church. And I saw this lady coming. Oh, finally, I see it. Finally, she was crying. My heart was moved. I started weeping. And I had to weep and hide it from my friends because they would tease me, of course. I was riding with all these bunch of cardinals, including my wife. But the lady was full of passion. But it was passion for emotions, for religious emotions, but not for the truth. Make sure it is the truth that binds us together. My premarital advice to couples before they 
they marry is find a spouse that you can agree to solve every issue with the only arbiter and final judge you can, the Bible. If you cannot agree on your differences, and you're going to have differences, a lot of them, but you cannot agree on solving them with your Bible open, find someone else. Oh, but she's pretty. No problem. They'll get old. Find another one. It's going to be happier and better. Final blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Every time I read a statement like that from Paul, I am shaken. Because this was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, who was taught that there is only one God, and that that one God is nothing like the image of a man. And that that one God, Yahweh, exists and is, but in heaven. And that all of those who are following this Jesus, who came claiming to be God, are heretics, idolaters, and need to be exterminated because we don't want to go back to Babylon to be exiled for worshiping Baal. This is the mindset of Paul. And all of a sudden, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I asked our tour guide, his name is Ariel. Ariel, how do you pronounce the tetragrammatron? How do you pronounce Y-H-W-H? From where we get Jehovah or Yahweh or Yahweh. How do you pronounce that? You know what Ariel told me? He says, I don't know. Because we are taught from childhood that when we see those four letters, we don't say a word. You don't pronounce those letters. What we say is Adonai, Lord. And here's this Jewish rabbi taught from childhood. You don't even mention the name of God. You say Adonai to refer to God. And the same guy says, the grace of Adonai, Yesu HaMashiach, Yesu Christu, Jesus Christ, be with you all. Only a miracle of the Holy Spirit causes such a thing. And there's no greater treasure or blessing than to have that grace. This benediction, as Jean Green says, far from being a formality tacked to the end of a letter, is the blessing of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ that embraces the fullness of the salvation that comes from the one who is the sole sovereign and savior. So prioritize for God's kingdom in your fellowship. Prioritize in preserving fellowship. Prioritize on the truth. And may the grace of Christ abound in you and in me from now and forevermore. Amen. Father, bless your word, we pray. Use it for your own purposes. Help us to apply it and to live it. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.